Hi, welcome back to Unleashed at Work and Home. My guest today is Alexandra Curlin, and she is known for her work with horses. She's written a number of books, the first of which was Clicker Training for Your Horse. Alexandra really introduced clicker training into the horse world, which had been known for some pretty horse-based training techniques before she got involved. She's now on the faculty of Clicker Expo, and she is really making a difference in teaching people about how better to communicate with animals through training and through relationship building. So the topic I really wanted to explore with Alexandra was trust. Welcome, Alexandra. Thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm delighted to have you. So I was thinking trust is such a, a really important topic when you're working with an animal that is so much larger than you are. It's one thing to, to say, like, I'm bigger and tougher than a poodle, but right. I'm not bigger and tougher than a horse. That's right. That's right. And trust, when you, when you suggested the topic of trust, my first reaction was, oh, not so sure I want to what can we talk about in terms of trust? Because it's such a funny word. And I think many of us jump to the meaning that we want it to have, that my horse trusts me to be a good person, that, that general type of meaning. But trust really just means you can be relied on. Mm-hmm. So you could be relied on to be a, an active punisher. Mm-hmm. I trust that if I get this wrong, you will punish me. I trust that if if I stand in the wrong place with this horse, he'll kick me, which is I don't think is really what you had in mind. When you, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. <laughs> but I, you know, I got tripped up over the use of trust years ago with a client. Actually, it was the husband of a client who made that observation and I went oh you're oh oh you're yeah blast it you're right there there's more to trust than just the touchy-feely meaning that most of that's an I don't mean to say that in a disparaging way because often when we say touchy-feely it does mean disparaging used Mm -hmm. in a disparaging way but but that you know that warm cozy I I my my horse can rely on me to be a good teacher, to be fair, to be kind. All of those things are what I want my horse, how I want him to view the relationship, but it's not really what trust means. Yeah. That's a fascinating insight. I once had someone break trust down for me into three components, and I think it relates to what you were saying. It was character competence and consistency. So character being, you know, do you have a moral code that you follow? Yes or no. Competence, do you have the skills required for the situation? Yes or no. And then consistency, how reliably do you perform? So while you could trust that I would have great intentions when I attempted to fix your car, I do not have the competence to fix your car, or for that matter, train your horse. Um, I don't have the competence to do that. So I might have the character, but I don't have the competence. Or I could be an amazingly talented at something, 
but I do it now and then, and you can't reliably predict it. So you can't really trust that you could count on me to come through for you, even though I had good character and good competence, but no consistency. And that ties into your piece of, of whether you can be relied upon yes. in a certain way. Right. And, and when we say I can be relied on upon, we have to fill in the second part of that. I can be relied upon always to be late. Mm-hmm. Or I can be relied upon to be on time. Right. So it, in a sense, it's, there's a bit of stability, I suppose, in knowing what to expect. Yes. And I think that's really what we want when it comes to the training is this knowing what to expect, which takes us in lots of interesting directions, one of which is to poison cues. Because in poison cues, you you don't know what the outcome is going to be. So tell us more about that. Well, if you if you have the point, the phrase poison cues goes back to it was coined by Karen Pryor, and most of us who are trained with positive reinforcement know who Karen Pryor is. She's the author of Don't Shoot the Dog. She was a marine mammal trainer, and for many of us, we first encountered clicker training positive reinforcement training through Karen's book. Yes. Yes. It, but but many members of my audience are in the veterinary community and may not be as familiar with training techniques and policies and Karen's work. Yes. Okay. So then what I would say is if you haven't read Don't Shoot the Dog, it should go right to the top of your must-read book list because it's it's not about training dogs per se. And it's not actually even about training. It's no. about operant conditioning. It's learning theory. And Karen, what's the, her ability to translate the, the terminology, the concepts into language that we could all relate to was second to none. Mm-hmm. And if you work with people, which all of us do if we have, if we're working with animals. And if you work with animals, the, the ahas that you will get as you read that book are definitely uh, put it on the, the must read list. Yes. And, it's, and it's an easy read. She's a superb writer. So it's, it's not, so many of the books on behavioral analysis or some of the research studies, they they aren't things that you want to read late at night unless you need something to help you go to sleep. But Karen's writing is superb. So it's very yeah. readable, very clear, very accessible, useful and, information. And a big variety of examples. Some yes. just human examples and some training in animal examples. So you could relate to it on a variety of levels and see how the same concept applies not in, in, yes. in a variety of situations, the same concept. And her chapter on on punishment, I thought, when, when I first read it, I remember so clearly reading that chapter and saying, oh, we in the horse world really, really, really need to understand this. Because as you mentioned at the start, the, the horse world, the traditional training is very much command-based training. We're working with a big animal where we're, horses are powerful, they're fast, and yes, they can be very sweet and very kind, but when training is going wrong, it can be very dangerous. 
and and so much so traditional horse training like men much of traditional training in general was command based force based if the horse wasn't doing what you wanted you escalated when you first start with horses you're you're told you need to get tougher. You need to um, get after the horse. And so we ha- you can go to tax stores and see little um, riding crops that are pink with sparkles on them that you give to a six-year-old child when she's learning to ride her pony and she's told to get your horse to go forward, you smack him. Mm-hmm. And what Karen was describing in the chapter on punishment is is that when you use punishment, you always, always, always get negative side effects. You always, they're, and they're, they're unwanted side effects and they're unpredictable. And so the fallout from punishment is considerable. And that if you're going to use punishment, that big if, but if you're going to use punishment, you need experience to use it with the timing that is required to keep it from becoming an abusive training technique. And she just, it was just so clear in how she was talking about punishment, what a minefield, what a problem it is for the training that we want, for the relationships that we want from our horses. And so I read that chapter thinking, oh, we in the horse world really need to understand more clearly, the fallout that comes from punishment. Mm-hmm. So Karen was really clear about that, and then she started. She was she coined the term "poison cues." That takes us back to mm-hmm. where we were uh, with the trust. And in poison cue, what Karen was saying is that in the research, in the the uh, scientific literature in the studies that are done, it's fairly easy to do studies in which you're looking at pure negative reinforcement or studies in which you're looking at pure positive reinforcement. So in one, you have a rat in a um, a research chamber and you, uh, the rat presses a lever and he gets treats coming uh, into his food hopper. So you can look at various parameters around the lever pressing and the, the receiving of positive reinforcement. Or you could electrify the floor and give him shocks. And if he presses the lever, he can turn the shocks off and you can study things around the negative reinforcement. Karen was saying is that that's not how the real world works. The real world isn't divided up into these clean categories, these black and white, it's this or it's that, the real world is made up of mixed consequences. So what happens if you have a poison cue, one in which you don't know what's going to happen to you? It's sort of like the lady or the tiger. If you if you come when your person calls you, if you're a dog, and you come over to the to person, are, is it going to be something good that happens or are you going to receive a correction? Mm-hmm. And the easiest way to think of poison cues is, and it's one that everybody can relate to. Suppose you're at work and you're checking your emails in the middle of the day 
and your supervisor sends you an email that says, before you leave, I'd like to see you in my office. And there are no little smiley emoticons attached to it. It's just that phrase, come and see me in my office before you leave today. And you don't know when you go there, is your supervisor going to be telling you that you've done such a great job and he's been hearing so many good things about the work you've been doing that he's giving you a bonus? Or is he going to tell you that he's had some complaints this week and he's docking your pay? Or worse, he's firing you. And it doesn't matter how many times it's a good outcome. When you see that email, your stomach is still going to churn. And that's a poison cue. You can't trust the outcome. And in the original research that was done by Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz, when they, they set up, they deliberately they taught two cues. One was taught with pure positive reinforcement, and the other was taught with a mixed consequence. So they were using, it's interesting that you mentioned a little poodle because they used a little poodle for this research. And under one set of conditions, when they gave the, uh, the clean, the positively reinforced cue, and the dog approached the handler, the dog was clicked and reinforced. In the other set of conditions in the teaching process, if the dog didn't come promptly enough, they, they had a harness on and the handler would drag the dog over to her. And then she would click and mm-hmm. reinforce. And what they, they, the question that they had is, what is the effect of these two teaching processes on the use of, on, on what, how you can use the two cues? So they had the Venn cue, which was taught with positive reinforcement, and it meant come. And they had another cue, Punir, which also meant come, but it was trained, trained with these mixed consequences. And what they found was that the then cue, the positively reinforced cue, worked beautifully in a chain and that you could use it to shape other behaviors. It worked exactly as you would want a cue to work. But in the Punir cue, what they saw was that behavior broke down and the dog, the body language was completely different. Instead of being this bright little tail wagging dog, it, its tail was down, its head was drooping, it was low energy, it meandered around the room, it didn't offer the behavior, completely different response under the two different sets of conditions. And in one, it was really clear the dog could reliably predict what was going to happen to it, it was going to get clicked and reinforced. And in the other, there was a great deal of uncertainty and the response, the behavior in the dog was completely different. Yeah, that's, that's so true. And certainty is such a, a powerful motivator for us as well. Like we sometimes don't realize that because we're not consciously thinking about it. But if something is uncertain, we we find ourselves feeling a little on edge, a little unsure. Um, even these government shutdown kind of things pieces like, will the government shut down? Will the government not shut down? There are so many people kind of hanging in the balance. 
that even if they didn't like the answer, but there was an answer, there's a bit of a comfort in knowing. That's right. It's it's if you you can't predict what is going to happen in the future. I mean, that isn't that the beauty of the positive reinforcement that we are doing and with well structured training, our our animals can predict what is going to happen next. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of confidence building and control really in that. If I come over and stand next to this uh, target that you've hung on the wall, I know you're going to click and give me goodies. And so, of course, I'm going to go over to the, to the bumper. And furthermore, I know that if you're asking for something hard, like if I'm standing next to the buoy, but now you want, you're going to ask me just to accept a shot, for example, and you're doing the training that would lead up to that. If that becomes too hard, I also know I can leave mm-hmm. and it's safe to leave. And all of that reliably, predictably gives me control and I don't have to, I, my stomach's not going to be churning. I'm not, if I'm the, the, in the thinking about being in the place of the animal who's going through this, I'm not worried about what's going to happen next. I know what's going to happen next, and I know I can handle it. And so I can be more confident. Yeah. Yeah. So with a, with a horse, if they have poisoned cues, what are some of the risks of that for the people interacting with that horse? Well, generally what you see with poison cues, whether it's a horse, a dog, a person, is you'll see them not engaging with the interactions in the same way that they would if if the behaviors had been trained under positive reinforcement. So you may see an animal that's very shut down. The ex- that expression with, that you have with both horses and dogs when they're you're trying to work them at liberty and, and they blow you off. So the dog goes over to sniff the training carpet. The horse goes over to sniff manure piles in the arena and, and they, uh, they avoid you. You'll see that kind of behavior. You can have, we've had horses where the environment, the training environment, the arena was very much a poison cue environment. And you had a horse who could be very calm in the barn aisle and very settled and you think oh what a great horse and then um, take them into this arena workspace and all of a sudden you have a horse who is trying desperately to leave who, who cannot stay in the workspace and when you've got a thousand pounds of of desperation <laughs> uh, it's 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 not much fun that's for sure yeah yeah and you already made the parallels. You jumped ahead of me because I was going to say after we did horses, I was going to go. And so how does that relate to people? And and you talked about it in a way that really does relate on the on the multiple levels with the uh, lack of engagement, the shutting down and, and the displacement behaviors, doing anything but the idea of an environment being a poison cue location is a really fascinating concept too that I think some people may not have thought about. So what you're saying, I believe, is that a horse could reliably do a behavior in a training facility 
or in a, in another location, but when coming into the arena, the arena being a poison cue environment, perhaps because, you know, more pressure and the trainers has higher stress and is less likely to reinforce attempts. And, you know, so there's all sorts of additional layers piled on top. Then the horse is reacting like, I don't do it here. I do it out there, but I don't do it in here. Is that what you're saying? Right. Right. Or you get a, you get a completely different uh, set of emotional behaviors. So let's talk about that from a people context, like how environments can the same, the same person might have different emotional response. You know where you really experience that is when you travel. And, and I travel a lot because I, I do clinics. And I started to really notice that when you're, when you're in your home environment, it's your normal environment. So you, you become habituated to, or you're, you're not aware of all the environmental cues that are triggering different emotional reactions. And so you, you, you are the product of all of those emotional, of all of those environmental cues. For example, my local post office, which has gotten so much better, and, and, and I'm pleased at that. But for a long time, my local post office was extremely annoying and very inefficient. Always there were long lines. And I, I do a lot of mailing. So I would feel my mood shift <laughs> as I pulled my car into the parking space in front of the post office. And I could have been in a really good mood, but as soon as my foot hit the first step of going up to the post office door, my mood would shift that it, I was absolutely cued by the entrance to this post office. And that's just a simple example. But what I started to really notice was that when I traveled, I stepped out of all of my familiar environmental cues. And so I got to experience who I am, who I actually am, and not the me that is the product of those familiar cues. Does that make sense? Am I saying yeah. that in a way that makes sense? And and I think that's in part why people enjoy going on holidays. It's not so much that you want to go to wherever it is that you're traveling to. I'm in upstate New York and it's snowing outside today. And I was just emailing somebody who was in Florida thinking, I'll bet she's, she's feeling very smug about <laughs> the difference in the weather. I happen to like winter, so it's all right. But, you know, I, I, I just think, is that why people so like traveling, even though travel has all kinds of stress mm -hmm. associated with it? It can be really tiring and et cetera, et cetera. But you get, you, you get a different... And is that why it's so refreshing? It's not that you have seen new horizons, so that can be wonderful, but it's that you have experienced a different you. Yeah. I love that idea. And, and maybe for people, you know, th that when you start to feel the oppression of poison cues, you know, you start for people, you know, your pet professionals, when you have certain people that, particularly vets and so on, uh, where you're treating all animals. I'm, I can be really, 
I have a very selective clientele. It's people who are interested in clicker training. That's who I work with. And clicker training, just it just attracts the nicest people. But if I were on that, I would be working with all pet owners. So somebody who uses training methods that I that would make me very uncomfortable, their dog still has health needs, and I would be treating that dog. And, and people come with the dogs and the cats. So there may be, I, can, I could easily see that there would be certain clients who, and I heard when I saw on the roster that so-and-so was scheduled for two o'clock, that there would be all kinds of triggers into emotional states that mess up my day. Yeah. So, and I think just recognizing that and then this realizing, this experiencing that when you can step outside the normal environmental triggers and notice who you are, it's an interesting experience. It's a really interesting experience. Because then you get to really ask the who am I and do I like me questions. Mm-hmm. And, and hopefully the answer comes back, oh, I quite like me when I'm, when I'm outside of those, you know, those, those triggers that maybe make me grumpy or make me a little short in how I respond to people or whatever it is that you prefer that you didn't do, but you find yourself doing regardless. And that's a lovely way of separating the behavior from the individual herself yes. and her worth. You know, yes. like, do I like me? Yes. When I, when I feel freed from some of, some of the triggers that bring me down, um, yeah. that, that's a really good place to start developing your action plan then, you know? Oh, that's right. So if someone is noticing that, that they, that they have, places that they create this emotional upheaval and they want to start changing it. What, what are your strategies for them? What would you say would be, you know, once they've recognized, oh, this is happening, what would be your next tip? Well, what Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz, who did the original research, what he would say is you change the cues, which is sometimes easier said than done. Start looking at, well, are there ways to change the cues? And sometimes there are, and sometimes it's fairly easy and straightforward to change the cues. I could go to a different post office, for example. That would be doable. There are other post offices in my area that might be a better option for me. So that would be something I could easily do. But if it were the only post office within a 10-mile radius then I might have to come up with some other plans for, for shifting my emotional response. And one, one of the, um, I've already suggested Karen Pryor's book, uh, Don't Shoot the Dog. There's another really good one called The Power of Habits, mm-hmm. which was written by, I want to say Charles Duhigg. Yep. But yes. Okay, good. I'm glad I got the his name right. And I think he has some superb suggestions in there for changing the response that you make to particular cues. Change yes. your habit patterns. And and I think that would be a place to send people for more of a detailed 
action plan if you find that there are lots of environmental cues that some of them you can change. So you're changing your patterns that way. And sometimes it's a matter of how do I then change? Can I change the cue itself? Or can I change the response to the cues? It's a long way from, from trust and horses. And because there's so many other directions we could take when we talk about trust. Like one of my favorite training phrases is trust the process. Okay, well, let's go that direction now. I will link to The Power of Habit in the show notes in case anyone wants that. Wants to read um, it. It's an excellent book. So let's, let's, let's go toward trust the process. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, it's an odd sort of phrase, trust the process. Actually, we need to, it, it's tied in with the poison cue mm -hmm. because it's also tied in with loopy training, which is, that's, that's an expression that, again, that Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz coined. He started looking at the training that people like myself and Kate Lawrence and Ken Ramirez and some of the other members of the Clicker Expo faculty were showing in the early days of the Clicker Expo. And one of the things that he noticed in the training when it was really going well was that it was going in loops. And that you could look at it in terms of movement cycles. And movement cycles are a really important part of training. They're, that you think of a movement cycle, and the, the example that's always used is sitting in a chair. So if you sit in a chair, that's an incomplete movement cycle. The movement cycle is not finished until you are standing up again. Or if you're teaching a dog to sit, and you get the dog to sit, well, if you want to ask him to sit again, he has to stand up. Mm -hmm. so, so a movement cycle has that going back to a starting point so you can do it again, going back to that beginning point so you can do it again. And, and that's what rolls into the idea of the loopy training, that if you, that, that phrase of uh, you have a behavior that you like, which you click and you reinforce. And if it is, if you have truly reinforced the behavior, you've made it more likely that it's going to occur again in the future. So it's really behavior leads to the click, leads to reinforcement, leads to more of the behavior, leads to click, leads to reinforcement, leads to more of it, and so on. So you have this, this loop of behavior. And when you have a, an animal that is very... Let's, let's look at, say, a very shut down horse or dog or child or yourself in a particular situation mm -hmm. that when I have, I'm dealing with a horse that is very shut down, there's very little movement, there's very little active behavior that's being offered. So I might be, I might want that horse to go forward. And so I'm going to ask the horse to go forward in some way. I might ask him to orient to a target. I might be using a lead rope. There are lots of different ways I can get the behavior. But right now, I might as well be working with a statue. This horse is offering, there's just nothing going on. Mm -hmm. He is expecting the worst. He's just shut down. So what I have to do is find something 
find some little glimmer of behavior where I can get a consistent yes answer response. I need to find some really tiny little behavior that I can click and reinforce. And so I'm going to make my loop super, super, super small. So small that it almost seems like this could not possibly lead anywhere. It might be as small as clicking when I notice that that horse has taken a breath. Because I know he's going to take a breath, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and, and unless I'm working with a, a sperm whale, you know, I, I know that even if he's really shut down, he's still going to be breathing. And I can take, I can click and reinforce when I get an exhale. And then as I repeat that, what I may feel is that that exhale begins to be oh, a little bit more relaxed. There's some quality about that that is changing. And in loopy training, the mantra is when a loop is clean, you get to move on. And not only do you get to move on, but you should move on. So it's a wonderful way of knowing when to change criteria. And a loop is clean when there are no unwanted behaviors coming into the loop. And both sides of the click have to be clean for the loop to be clean. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... So I've got this tiny, tiny little reaction pattern going. My horse is exhaling and I'm, and I'm reinforcing. And part of trust the process is trust that this is going to go somewhere. Trust that this tiny little response is going to lead to amazing, incredible things. So another training mantra is the longer you stay with an exercise, the more good things you'll see that it gives you. So I can start with this tiny reaction pattern, this one thing that I can get, and I can start to reinforce it, and I can follow that mantra, the loopy training, and it will grow into the sky's the limit. And you can do the same thing with the animal that is offering you lots of behavior, but none of it is anything that you want. You know, that horse that is crowding in on top of you and swiping at your clothes and pinning his ears and <laughs> swishing his tail and pawing, and, you know, or whether it's the dog that is barking and bouncing and, and jumping up on you and barking some more, or the child that is, you know, you, you, you can create your own picture. If I can grab hold of one tiny little thing and I focus like a laser beam in on that one tiny little thing in the midst of all of that other stuff, that tiny little germ will grow and it will push out and push aside all that other unwanted behavior. It will just, I'll just fill the dance card with things that I want. And so I think particularly when you have that, that individual, what, whatever species it is, I work with horses, so that, that horse that is oh, just is, you know, grabbing at the lead, grabbing at your clothes, pushing into you, busy, 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 doing all kinds of things that you don't want. It's really hard to believe that if you click and reinforce, and, and especially if you be 
handing him a goodie while he's pawing. And you think, how is this ever going to work? And yet it does. So uh, when we tie together all of these different ideas of the reliability, because when I'm following loopy training, I'm being incredibly reliable. And I follow the mantras of loopy training. I'm aware of poison cues. I'm aware of environmental cues and how much they can affect the emotional behavior that I see in the individual that I'm working with. When you tie all of those pieces together, you begin to create a process that allows you to bring some stability to the equation. And now we can get to those three characteristics of trust that you described at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's sort of interesting because this ties so beautifully back into the overarching theme of the entire podcast, which is just helping people feel a little more resilient. And the idea of trusting the process and taking tiny steps and and reinforcing them and believing yes. that this will lead to good things is so powerful. Yes, and it does lead to good things. It's confirmed over and over and over again with the horses. Just trust the process. It works. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much, Alexandra. If people wanted to learn more about you and your work, where could they do that? Well, they would start at theclickercenter.com. That's my main website. And, and that has uh, the main resource base there. And then I have a blog, theclickercenterblog.com, which is full of articles. And I've published two books on the blog in addition to a lot of articles. So there's a lot of reading there. I have an online course, theclickercentercourse.com. I have a weekly podcast, equosity.com. That can be a hard one to remember, but it's equus plus curiosity gives you equosity. And I will link to it. Okay, excellent. So my event schedule is on my website, and I also present at conferences. And again, the event schedule is on my website. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, you're very welcome. It did veer off in directions I never expected, but... It does all tie back to our theme of trust. I think I think we did it. Good. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Much more fun when it takes you in directions you're not expecting. I agree. Absolutely. Do you want to feel stronger, happier, and more resilient? Let's face it. Who doesn't? Check out the new Unleashed Resilience Skills Groups. They're online, small group sessions that are guaranteed to improve your outlook on life. Visit ColleenPilar.com for more info.